it's a desperate move on her part because, you know, they just left the European Union, and so Great Britain is looking for a friend again. So happy Independence Day. Of course, for believers, uh, we never lack an Independence Day. For believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, every day is our Independence Day. But we are very thankful for our country. We are very thankful for this weekend and for all of you that are here. Uh, by the way, Stuart Briscoe, who is a pastor in Elmbrook, at, uh, Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for many, many years, he was English-born, came over here as an adult, and has pastored here since and written books. You may be familiar with him. When he first arrived, uh, he met with a number of people, and one of them asked them, do you have the 4th of July in England? And he said, no, ma'am, we just skipped from the 3rd to the 5th. So, and isn't it interesting that... Uh, when we say 4th of July, we are adopting the British formula for saying a date. We normally do month, day, year, and they do day, month, year. And so when we say 4th of July, it really betrays our, our British roots in that sense. But anyway, this Independence Day. As I was thinking, well, let me pray, and then we will start looking at the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for this day of life that you have blessed each one of us with. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to meet freely together today without fear of persecution, with the ability to own copies of your word in our own language. What a great privilege and a blessing from your hand. Lord, I thank you for your people. Thank you for this church, this local expression of the body of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness over the decades. Thank you for your continued work in each one of our lives. And we look forward to all that you're going to do in us and through us in the days to come. And Lord, as you give us our days, may we recognize and see your blessings each day, recognize that your word is truth and authentic and authoritative. And Lord, I thank you that you've given it to us. And your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And we thank you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And today, uh, may my words uh, be used by you and may they be accurate and to the point. And Lord, I thank you for each one here, for our children downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister to them. We praise you for those who dedicate uh, their lives to uh, bringing up children in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the parents that are represented here of young children and the teenagers. Lord, pray for them for perseverance and wisdom and consistency as they continue in this great responsibility and great joyous task. Lord, thank you for each one here. And we know that uh, some are struggling with great adversities in their life. I think of uh, Ron Scheib, I think of <clears throat> Neil Smith, and we do pray for them, and there are many others. Uh, we do pray for them specifically, Lord, for your hand to be upon them, that they would know you're with them, that they'd have great comfort in this time of physical adversity. And for their wives, Lord, we pray for them also in family. Thank you for your word this morning. Pray that uh, we would uh, be attentive to what you have for us today, for it's in Jesus' powerful na name I pray. Amen and amen. Uh, I finished a book uh, by Hampton Sides this uh, last spring, and it's entitled In the Kingdom of Ice. And it is a book about a historical expedition by the United States Navy and by many of a polar expedition in the 19th century. Of course, the polar regions were basically unknown, and there was a race for the poles at that time. But Hampton Sides writes a very compelling account of this 19th century polar expedition and the, the ship was the USS Jeanette, the USS Jeanette. It was captained by George DeLong, had a crew, I think, if I remember correctly, of 33. And it really serves as a cautionary tale of the hazards of misorientation. 
not because their compass was faulty, but because of their charts, their oceanic charts and maps were wrong. DeLong's entire expedition rested upon the picture of the North Pole laid out in deluded or wrong maps that were developed by a German, Dr. August Heinrich Petermann. Petermann's map suggested that there was a, uh, a uh, thermometric gateway into the Arctic Ocean. In other words, once you got past the ring of ice and they went up through the Bering Straits, uh, that you would basically find another ocean, another place. And his map suggested that, that there would be a vast polar sea on top of the world with a fair weather passage beyond all of that ice. And uh, USS Jeanette and the crew and everybody backing that, the United States Navy, said, this is what we're going to do. We need to find this. But it turned out that that world did not exist. Hampton Sides right. As perilous ice quickly surrounded the USS Jeanette, the team had to shed its organizing principles in all of their unfounded romance and replace them with a reckoning of the way the Arctic really is. You know, often our culture sells us falsy, or false and faulty and fantastical maps of what it means to have the good life. Uh, you know, all of advertising is based on that. If you just buy our product, then your marriage will be perfect or your children will be strong and healthy. Whatever it is, uh, they paint alluring pictures, these fake maps or these wrong maps and charts. All too often, we stake our own expedition through life, setting sail towards them with every sail hoisted full. And we do so without thinking because in these maps, they work on our imagination. Oh, if the holidays could only be like what I see on TV. Or if my family could only be as perfect as that family portrayed in the pictures or the magazines or the books in the popular culture. But we think about those with our imagination and our emotive response rather than our intellect. And sadly, for some, it's not until they're shipwrecked that they realize they were trusting in false, faulty maps or charts. So we come today to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I've, I think we'll just start referring to him as H. That way it's just easier because like Wes said, the more I try to pronounce it, the worse it gets. You know, I like uh, K3 because he has three K's in his name. But we come to uh, Habakkuk and we see a man here. We don't know much about him. Remember, he's only mentioned twice in the whole Bible, once here in verse 1 of chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, verse 1, that's the only indicator we have of this man named Habakkuk. And yet we glean a lot from these two and a half pages of God's word. We glean a lot about who he is as a person. He's a man of faith. And this book is a book about faith. In fact, the central and the most important verse that's repeated actually and, uh, and used in the New Testament by the writer of Hebrews as well as Paul is chapter 2 and verse 4 where he says, The righteous will live by his faith. And that's uh, the key verse in this whole book. And so it's a book about faith in the face of things that tell you that everything else is wrong, that, that uh, you shouldn't have any faith. And this is what Habakkuk is, is facing. He asked some of the most <clears throat> fundamental questions in all of life. And I think he asked the questions that you and I ask from time to time. He's all, also, uh, he provides a critical foundation for our belief system in which to build a proper understanding of God's character and his sovereign ways in ministry and in history. Remember, sovereignty is God is in control of all things at all times and all places. But yet we look at the world, even this morning, a bombing in Baghdad killed 
126 people last. I read probably the death toll is rising. ISIS at their work again. And we look around and say, boy, God, if you're in control, I don't know if I want any part of this. And we look in our own country at the tragedies, and we don't have to go far. And we look in our own lives and see difficulties and adversities or friends and family that they're going through. And yet the core message is the just shall live by faith. And so in this journeying, we're journeying from worry to worship, and this is what Habakkuk does. Sometimes, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little impatient with God. Uh, We can look historically, and yet we recognize that uh, the Bible tells us that God is active and living, and yet we question that at times. And this is where we find Habakkuk at this time. We wonder why he doesn't do something about evil in the world or problems within our own families, or illnesses in our bodies, or difficulties in our country, or other places around the world. And through this Old Testament prophet, we can learn the travel from perplexity to peace. We're going to see here that Habakkuk is deeply distressed as he begins this letter. And he's basically asking the questions, why are the wicked prospering in the midst of God's people? Why are the righteous beaten down? And why is God seemingly inactive and indifferent in the day of wickedness? Uh, In the historical context of Habakkuk, he is serving as a prophet in the southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin, the tribes uh, that split off from the northern ten kingdoms, which is usually referred to Israel. Remember, Israel was taken into captivity by the world superpower Assyria in 722 B.C. Now we find ourselves in about 605 B.C. in another superpower, is pounding at the door, Babylon, or the Chaldeans. Uh, They had already destroyed Assyria. They had rebelled against that superpower, overcome them, and now uh, they had already beaten down Egypt, and Judah was just a small crumb in the midst of what their purposes were. And so in those questions that come up, because God's people were in spiritual declension, Habakkuk served during the good king, Josiah's reign, but his reign was ending And the bad kings were coming, and also the Babylonians were coming. The conditions in Judah were not good. The God's people who should have known better were in spiritual decline, and that's who he is talking about. He's not talking about the Babylonians to begin with. He's talking about the supposed God's people, the Judeans in Judea. So does God care? That's the fundamental question in this first part, and over the next several weeks, As we go through this book, and we'll finish it in about four weeks, uh, he's going to answer the questions, does God care? Is God fair? Is God just? Is God there? And where there is peace, where there is peace in all of this. So some fundamental questions. Habakkuk moves in this book from burdens to blessings. In fact, in that first verse, it says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oracle is the Hebrew word masa, And it can be translated burden. It certainly was a burden. It was given to him from God. And we see it was in a vision form when it says the prophet saw it. In fact, Habakkuk is the only pre-exilic prophet to be identified as a prophet in his own writings. He does that twice in 1.1 and 3.1. And so Habakkuk is asking some fundamental questions. But we're going to see here that there is a distress in Habakkuk's life. He is a prophet of God. He knows what should be happening, and yet it seems like God does not care. And so the distress of thinking that God does not care. And there are probably times where some of us could report 
and when we were very honest with one another that i don't think god cares about this situation whether it is a severe health problem a death of a loved one uh, financial crisis whatever it may be we think that god does not care sometimes in verses one through four habakkuk asks three questions the first one is why doesn't god hear why doesn't god hear the second one why doesn't god help The third one is, why doesn't God intervene? Look at verses 1 through the first part of verse 2. God seems indifferent to our prayer, to our supplications. How long, verse 2, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Why doesn't God hear? You know, prayer is an amazing thing. Prayer is a curious thing that God has us to do. Many people struggle with the whole issue of prayer. I do from time to time. If God is all-knowing, he already knows all my needs, he already knows what's supposed to happen, and he's all-powerful to accomplish it, and yet we are commanded to pray. We see that Jesus prayed, the early church prayed, so we are to be about prayer. I like Larry Crabb's report, uh, Larry, Dr. Larry Crabb, in uh, an article. He said, when I was 10 years old, I first read Matthew 21, 22, where Jesus, who never lies, said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It was the, quote, whatever model of prayer. Believe, ask for whatever you want, and it's yours. He was 10 years old. He said, I remember running outside, standing on our driveway, closing my eyes real tight and praying, God, I want to fly like Superman, and I believe you can do it, so I'll jump and you take it from there. I jumped four times, and each time I landed a half a second later, a half foot farther down the driveway. I had believed, and I had asked, just like Jesus said, but I didn't receive. Thus began my 50-year journey of confusion about prayer. Perhaps you've been there with Dr. Larry Crabb. I know I have. God seems indifferent to our supplications. And this is where Habakkuk is. This is when we go up to the hospital. I don't know how many times I've visited you or your loved ones or friends or other people in a hospital and prayed. I've learned to just say humbly, Lord, humbly, if it's your will, would you please heal them? But if not, Lord, we know you have a better plan. And yet, Lord, it's the, the, yet it's this question is, does God really hear us? The second question Habakkuk asks is, why doesn't God help? Look at the second part of verse 2 here. Second part of verse 2, I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why doesn't he help? Why does he seem inactive in our suffering? The English doesn't convey it here, but Habakkuk is in deep distress. Through the Hebrew language, we know that he's, he's deeply hurting. The translation doesn't capture that. He seems to cry out to God, why are you inactive in my suffering? I think all of us have been there if you've lived long enough. Why doesn't God help? Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my goal, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Did you catch that? Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end or my goal, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. 
In those deep nights of the soul, when we question if God is even there, we go back to his characters revealed in Scripture. We go back to his faithfulness in our history and recognize that, yes, even though I don't understand, even though he's not rescuing me from my perspective, he doesn't help me in my sufferings from my perspective, he is still there, and he is who he is, and he is still our Savior. So why doesn't God hear? Why doesn't he help? Habakkuk asks a third question. Why doesn't God intervene? He seems insensitive to the sin and strife. And boy, all you have to do is just look at the news, you know. And it seems like God is insensitive to sin and strife around our world, around our country. Look at verses 3 and 4 where he says, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. So Habakkuk is personally offended by what he sees going around in his own country, about his own people who are rebelling against God. There's violence, there's strife, there's sin. He's personally offended, but he's more than that in verse 4. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Ultimately, he's more offended for God. This is what righteous anger is. He is righteously angered because God's people are ignoring him. They're going the opposite way. There is violence. There is sin. There is strife. How do we comprehend all of this? You may remember missionary Gracia Burnham. She and her husband, Martin, were held by terrorists in the Philippines for more than a year. And then eventually when the rescue arrived, Martin Burnham was killed. And Gracia Burnham, his wife, uh, wrote in a book, she wrote later, she says, sometimes I wonder, why did Martin die when everyone was praying he wouldn't? Why does scripture lead you to believe that if you pray a certain way, you'll get what you pray for? People all over the world were praying that he'd both get out alive, but we didn't. Her question is a real one. It's an authentic one. It is an honest question. Her questions made made her realize this was a major shift in her life, that she she doesn't always, it isn't always easy to comprehend God's nature. She went on to write, I used to have this concept of what God is like and how life's supposed to be because of that. But in the jungle, I learned I don't know as much about God as I thought I did. I don't have him in a theological box anymore. What I do know is that God is God, and I'm not. The world's in a mess because of sin, not God. Some awful things may happen to me, but God does what is right, and he makes good out of bad situations, unquote. So here we find Habakkuk. He's basically in the same place. That's the human condition. If you believe in God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will come to these crisis points. And crisis points are not necessarily bad because I think they are the springboard, the catalyst to spiritual growth if we allow it. The danger is, though, that we back away from our faith. And I've seen that happen, too. To walk away from one's faith because of unanswered questions about evil is to walk into a storm of unanswered questions about good. There are many unanswered questions. So in distress, Habakkuk cries out to God, and now God answers. In verse 5 through 11, it's God speaking. We know that because the personal pronouns are plural. He's addressing more than just Habakkuk. He's addressing the nation of Judah. 
those who are under getting ready to be under the thumb of Babylon and to go into captivity. And uh, he says what he's doing. And so he has an intention of discipline. He does hear. He does help. He does intervene. And he tells, he gives Habakkuk some insight into that. Look at verse 5 where he says, Look out among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. And he's referring to the whole nation of Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, as they're gathered there in Jerusalem. And he says, uh, most of you wouldn't believe this, but Habakkuk's responsibility is to convey God's word to the people. In fact, Habakkuk is the only prophet who, who uh, uh, goes to God about the people instead of going to the people about God. And yet he writes this book, God uses him. In verses 6 through 11, he tells us not only his intention of discipline, but his instrument, which will cause great perplexity and confusion on the part of Habakkuk, as we will see next week. In verse 6, he says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, they were Babylonians. They lived in southern Mesopotamia. They were called an ancient nation by Jeremiah. In fact, Habakkuk was a contemporary of, of Jeremiah and probably Ezekiel. They were a primeval people. Abram, of course, Abraham, he moved his family from Ur of the Chaldees. That was the area where these Babylonians came from. God called his people out of this savage people. And now this nation had burst forth from the Tigris-Euphrates River, and they were sweeping over the then-known world like a, like a hot lava flow. And uh, they spilled across the world. And Judah, this little dot on the map, would soon be in their wake. But we see five things about this instrument of discipline. First of all, in verse 7, they had status. They had status. Look at verse 7. Uh, well, first of all, the second part of verse 6. They are fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth, seize dwelling places which are not those. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. The Lord described them here that they are without rival. Babylon had already defeated Assyria, a superpower. Egypt, the other superpower, they were on their own. They had the whole world in their hands. They were a lot of them themselves. Uh, they promoted their own honor. They lifted themselves up. They were superior, so they thought, in their own ruthless conduct. Secondly, they had speed. Look at the poetic language here in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. In that day and age, a, a camel or a horse was like an M1 Abrams tank coming across the desert. Thousands of them. They had speed. Notice he uses horses, wolves, and eagles here. The Lord describes the foe as a people swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Both uh, leopards and wolves seek their prey at dusk, at, at, at beginning of night. Their voracious speed in contest was like a, a vulture or an eagle swooping to devour. And uh, that's what they were. Certainly the Babylonians were likened to ferocious beasts. They were terrible enemies. Third, they had success. Look at verse 9. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forwards. They collect captives like sand. There was no stopping the Babylonians. They all came bent on violence. Uh, their whole military force was engaged in the invasion. Uh, their hordes advanced like the desert wind, that Sirocco desert wind that swept across and withered all of the crops and the plants. 
It was like that. They would gather prisoners like sand, <clears throat> expressing numbers too vast to calculate. Fourthly, they were scoffers. Look at verse 10. They mock at kings, and rulers are like a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Uh, they sweep past like the wind. Their major offense was clearly recorded. They were scoffers. They built up earthen ramps, siege ramps against any fortress and overcame it. In verse, in the, verse 11, we find the fifth description, that they were sacrilegious. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will, not, they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God, and they used their own strength as their God. That's what they worshiped. Their major offense was clearly recorded. They were sacrilegious. God declared them guilty ever, even before they ever arrived at Judah's door. Can you imagine that uh, Habakkuk, he's basically praying, Lord, do you hear? Do you help? Do you intervene? And then God reveals to him, this is my plan. Oh, much confusion because the Babylonians were much worse than Judah. And yet, this is God's plan. God's point in these verses is clear. You may not like my answer, but I'm in control and I'll take care of the problem. I am not indifferent to sin. I'll use the Babylonians to punish Judah, but also take care of the Babylonians. Evil ultimately will not triumph over good. What comfort that truth is today as it was then. I think we should grasp onto that, that God is not asleep. He knows about ISIS. He knows about homegrown terrorists. He knows about all the adversity we face. He knows about everything that's happening in your life. And evil will not triumph. God is good. So we come to that major question, does God hear, does he help, does he intervene? And that is a major question that we have. Habakkuk had it, and we have it too from time to time. Another author, John Krakauer, wrote a book called Into Thin Air. Uh, it's about an ill-fated Mount Everest climbing expedition. You may have read it about the hazards that uh, those climbers faced. And as they attempt to reach the summit, it resulted in great loss of life in that expedition. One of those who died was Andy Harris. He was one of the expedition leaders. Harris had stayed on the peak, uh, on the peak past the deadline, and on his descent, he became in dire need of oxygen. Harris radioed his predicament to the base camp, telling them of his need and that he had come upon a cache of oxygen cylinders uh, left by other climbers, but they were all empty. Those who had gone down before him had passed by those canisters on their own return, and they knew they were not empty, but they were all full. Even as they pleaded with him on the radio to make use of them, it was no avail. Harris was already starved for oxygen. He continued to argue that the canisters were empty. The problem was that the lack of what he needed so disoriented his mind that though he was surrounded by a restoring supply, he continued to complain of its absence. The very thing he held in his hand was absent in his brain and ravaged his capacity to recognize what he was clutching in his grasp, and he paid the ultimate price for that. We, too, can get disoriented. We, too, can face these fundamental questions as Habakkuk did, and if we don't grasp on to the oxygen of spiritual life through the Lord Jesus Christ, we, too, will be disoriented, and life may not turn out so well for us. Stephen Curtis Chapman, the singer, writes, I have learned that we can control where we allow things that we can't understand to fall. They either fall between us and God 
and we become angry or we allow those things to fall outside of us and press us closer to God. May we be pressed closer to God as we will see Habakkuk was, even a time of national calamity, a time of great difficulty and adversity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you and praise you that you are the Almighty God. There is none like you. And Lord, we thank you for Habakkuk. We thank you for the fact that uh, you used this man, this little-known prophet, that, uh, to write such a powerful book. And we thank you, Lord, for him. And we thank you for these words. We pray that we would have our spiritual life grown and our faith built because of this exposure to your word of God here this morning. And Lord, in those perplexing questions that seem so unanswered, these uh, unanswered questions that all of us have, Lord, that we would trust you for the outcome because you alone are the only one worth trusting in all of life. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. The men are going to help uh, serve this morning would come up. We will partake together of the Lord's table. I was thinking uh, after experiencing last week's service where Paul concluded uh, the training on writing your own testimony and giving a three-minute testimony, and then as we concluded that and we were in groups and it was really, I, I was amazed. I mean, you all were just, just sharing and listening, and it was a tremendous thing uh, that we, and really as Christians, we see the early church always shared their testimonies with one another. One of the things I was challenged by as a, as a young Christian over in Montana, we had a guest choir come to our church on a Sunday night, and uh, basically the church we were in, we were all new Christians, and so, you know, me speak, no way, you know. And so the, whoever was leading said, who would like to share something tonight, you know? And we all looked at our shoes and, uh, you know, looked down and fiddled with our Bibles and stuff. <clears throat> Nobody did it. And then one guy in the back of the choir, he said, I'd love to share my story. And he was so joyful. And he just gave his testimony. And I don't remember the specifics of it. I just remember his face was like glowing. He was so happy of what Jesus had done for him. And that's what I experienced in my little group up here as I listened to one of the ladies share her testimony and just glowing with what Jesus has done. And that is a great, great thing to do and a great exercise. And also, I'd encourage you to write it out so that your children, grandchildren, other friends, family can know and have a copy of it uh, when you're unable to do it verbally. But yet this morning, we all testify that we believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to partake of these elements, very simple elements, the bread and the cup, as Jesus commanded at the at the first Lord's table in Luke chapter 22, where he took the, the Israel's uh, Passover and he applied new meaning because he was the fulfillment of Israel's longing for centuries, uh, that he was the Messiah and he brought us to this. And this is a memorial time, a time to remember what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, in the central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, twice he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we call it a memorial feast because we remember him. These elements are to help us remember as we think about it and uh, to be challenged. I am always challenged as we partake of this together. What do I remember? And of course, I remember different things. My own lostness and then salvation at age 28, how Jesus Christ opened my eyes to the truth. Uh, I remember his faithfulness over the years. There's a number of things you can remember. And so that challenges. What do you remember when you partake of these elements? Because we certainly don't want this to become a ritual a ritual is a mindless exercise. We want to be thinking people, and we want to remember what Jesus has done for us. 
And Paul writes, because he was instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said. So I'm going to ask uh, Wes Crago to give thanks for the bread this morning. 